Welcome to the show. You're listening to the Hope Radio Podcast. Stories, profiles, and interviews of courage, triumph, and perseverance. My name, my name is Sean Davis. I happen to be your humble host. And joining me as always, my wife, my partner in crime, my soul mate, my everything. <laughs> Her name is... Just Jen. I got a little laugh out of you before I did the end. You, you, you made yourself known. You, you got a little chuckle, chuckle, You always chuckle. make me laugh when you say my partner in crime because you know I don't like crime. I don't I like murder. I don't like it, crime. I don't like that. I know. So I don't want to be your partner in that. Well, I know. <laughs> but if we were ever to go down that road for any reason, I know you are my ride or die. You would stick with me or would you throw me to the wolves? You're my, my, we're Bonnie and Clyde. Are we? I, I would be. What? I just don't want to. You'd shoot him up with me? Yeah. That's not very hope. I know, but like sometimes <laughs> you gotta, you gotta fight <laughs> for your right to party. <laughs> Oh, you make me laugh. You make me smile. You so cute. <laughs> you got some uh you got some teacher glasses on today. You must I be reading stuff. I'm going to teach you things. Oh, really? I don't like crime. I know. <laughs> See, Jen, what's funny is like like I like like real world stuff. Like I like I don't I don't watch comedies. You know, like I have a hard time other than Shit's Creek. I like that show. That show <laughs> <laughs> that that one's that one's on point. I love that show, but uh, generally speaking, we don't watch you know comedies. But I li- I like like real drama stuff. So Jen Jen says Jen says this. Don't watch murder. I don't want you to watch murder when I'm trying to go to bed. Why are you you're putting on a murder show? Come on. And I'm and so like I can't I can't because she'll have like horrible nightmares yeah. about it. Right? Like you'll. I murdered somebody. Jennifer. <laughs> I did. Stop. With a hammer. Oh, my gosh. And I'm in the home renovation business, so it could happen. Who's, Stop. Who's going to be on my list? I don't want to be on that list. I'll tell you that much right and now. I was going to jail, and that's what I don't like. <laughs> I don't so want to go there. Wait, let me get you this. Let me get, so you had a dream <laughs> that you murdered someone, and your biggest problem with it was the, the you had to go to jail. Yep. <laughs> Jennifer. Oh, I don't know why I murdered somebody. Yeah, that didn't come up. It was probably some show you were watching. I don't even know what happened. See, this is why we can only watch food at night. Yes. Like you, and, and so you dream of food. I love dreaming of food. So we got to watch some cake show, yes. some competition show, yep. some decorating show, some sort of whatever. <laughs> now, we found a happy medium. What's that? Oh. Like oh. car restoration shows. Yeah. It's not cake. It's not murder. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna start. Uh, See, I'm not restoring a cars. So the whole the whole watching food shows, like I, I can take it or leave it. I just need mindless TV when I'm going to bed. Really? Yeah, because my brain like is absorbing all that bad stuff, and I don't like it. And then you got frustrated with me when I said it was time to go to bed, and you weren't ready yet, and you're like, you forcing <laughs> me you, you, to turn on you know, being rude. I want to hear noise when I fall asleep. Well, you just need to try to close your eyes a little sooner. No, then it's quiet. And then my, my I start hearing my head. So I just want to hear other people's noise. I'm sure mine. everyone can relate. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there's somebody listening right now that goes, she's me. <laughs> and he's me. Voices in my head. Voices in your head. <laughs> All right. Well, we got a Hope Radio podcast show to do. So how about, how about, how about joke time? Let's tell jokes. Let's do some funny because, you know, funny is funny. I do love funny. I can't believe you don't like funny comedy shows. <laughs> here's, here's, here's the issue. Okay. I liked Modern Family. Mm-hmm. I don't know why we stopped watching. I, I like Shit's Creek a lot. I think that's yeah. a really, really funny show. It's I think hilarious. It's, I think it's very entertaining. Um, but I don't know. I don't. I don't generally. We, we've never in our life watched The Office. We've never watched. You know, yeah. like what? A I lot love of people Friends. Know. Friends makes me laugh. Was that a comedy? Yeah. Friends it's was just, a comedy. Oh yeah, it was a comedy. I guess. Real. Yeah, that's true. It's real life. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. All right. You ready? I'm ready. All right. So you can go first. Okay. What candy bar is in the Baseball Hall of Fame? This Babe is, Ruth. Yes. That, I was going to say, this is like trivia facts. Was that a joke? No. 
<laughs> was that your joke? I I guess I was just. Uh, <laughs> I guess I was just uh, giving you some information. <laughs> How is that a joke? I don't know. You didn't try very hard to find a joke. It just popped into my head. What do you mean? <laughs> it popped into my head. You just ate some random fact and you think that's a joke? I was thinking about a Babe Ruth. What? Yep. You're thinking about food again. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently I hit your tickle bone too. I'm funny. That's why. That was not funny. There was no joke. I'm funny. Yes, the joke you are wasn't fun. funny, but I'm funny, so winning. Yeah, you do. You do make me laugh. All right, so I guess I'm the only one telling the joke today. Yeah. Are you ready? Yes. All right, here we go. Okay. All right. What creature is smarter than a talking parrot? A creature. Yeah. What creature is smarter than a talking parrot? What's a creature? It's it's like a thing. Is it's it like an a, animal. It's like, a, like an animal. Like a like a something that lives on the planet. What animal? What creature is smarter than a talking parrot? Um, Sasquatch. No. Oh, yeah. No. Okay, what? A spelling bee. <laughs> <laughs> I think a parrot's smarter. Than a spelling bee? Yeah. Why? Because they can talk. It's a bird that can talk. That's smart. Well, that doesn't mean it thinks. Well, it's talking and it does think. It thinks. Yeah. You think so? Uh-huh. Well, I think they think too, but anyway, we're getting... <laughs> a spelling bee really doesn't even spell. I know. But a parrot it was really cu- talks. It was certainly cuter than your joke. <laughs> I didn't your tell a joke. Your non-joke. I didn't tell a joke. I am the joke. Well, at least we can agree on that. <laughs> All right. So moving on, I've got an interview for you. Okay, we're going to talk to a gentleman that I'm excited to have his story shared. His name is Rob Lohman, and I feel like when you think about the tree of adversity, so just imagine this super tall, 100-foot-tall pine tree, and every limb is some form of adversity. I feel like Rob fell down all the limbs and hit all of the tree. Ouch. Yeah, I feel like he's had a uh, very, very challenging life, but I think that he's risen out of those challenges. Mm-hmm. He has found hope through his story, and now he's using his story to impact and change the lives of others, even getting some legislation approved in Colorado that uh, helps some uh, inmates that in correctional facilities and in prison. So we'll hear more about his story, but I'm excited to get him on the line and chat with him about his life and um, his take on hope. Yeah, me too, actually. You ready? Yes. So let me call him up. I'll get him on the line right now. All right, it's my pleasure. I got Rob Lohman on the line. Rob, welcome to Hope Radio Podcast. How are you today? I am excited to be here and hang out with you for a little while. Thanks so much for the invite. Yeah, us too. And uh, we're excited to have you on the show. And uh, I gather right now you tell us a little bit about your, yourself because I think you're in Colorado, right? Is that correct? I am in beautiful Littleton, Colorado, which is on the western side of the Denver area right by the foothills. So it is beautiful out here. Uh, Colorado is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, I've been several times. Jenna has actually been yes. more often than myself. And so she's been to the Red Rock Amphitheater outside of uh, Denver, right? And uh, went to a concert there with a friend. And I'm like, oh, man, that place looked absolutely no, 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 phenomenal. No. I did not go to a concert with a friend. I ran stairs with a friend. Oh, there you go. All right. <laughs> do totally not want to, thing. Do totally not want to shortchange her physicality here. And almost died because that's hard in that kind of elevation. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> now, crazy story. So I Littleton it is the home of also Columbine. Is that correct? Yes, that is actually about uh, two miles from where we live right now, yeah. So one of our very first guests within the first 10 interviews is we interviewed um, just a just an incredible woman and uh, heard her story. She was a freshman at Columbine, 
when that uh, just horrible event took place. And so to hear her talk about it and hear her talk about the community and how the community has risen and just how close it is, et cetera, it was a, just a fascinating mm-hmm. conversation. So um, I, I know that community is an incredible community. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're there and, and glad you're making a difference in uh, other people's lives as well with what you're doing, which we'll get to in a in a few minutes. But uh, would love that place to be known for something other than that, right? Yeah, for sure. Okay, yes, yes, for sure. Well, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your life? I mean, obviously, we're doing a show about hope here, and in the pre-show, I know we, we've had a couple active conversations, and I think your story is, is one that is embodying the idea of hope through perseverance and trials and tribulations, but uh, I'll let you unpack it a bit for, for our listeners. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I can give you the rap sheet of the roller coaster ride to, to <laughs> give people some some, some connection points because, you know, we're talking about growing up in a Christian family and just going way off track through addiction and suicide and suicide ideation to just, a just took me to some dark places. But I mean, we're, we have, we have bankruptcy in this story and divorce and marriage and children and thriving in Jesus Christ and just a plethora of opportunity to find connecting points with your listeners uh, for sure. Absolutely. Well, I, I know in reading about uh, your story on your website, I, I know that uh, 2001 was a pretty formative year for you. And, um, you know, you mentioned growing up in a, in a faith-based family, etc. So let's, let's go back to that point. At, at what point do you think, you know, the train started to come off the tracks a bit in your life and you were heading down a path that, that led to some um, other bad decisions or poor choices? Yeah. So, you know, grow, I grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and, and I loved it there. My cousins were down the street from me. My grandparents were close by and just, I was that goofy, funny, silly glasses wearing kid. And when I was nine, we moved to Fort Worth, Texas. And that was a pretty big culture shock from, uh, from Fort Wayne to the, you know, to the good South of Fort Worth, Texas. And I just, something switched. And I don't know what it was specifically. Like I didn't have a, a major traumatic event in my life or something, but I remember at 14 years old, I was at a, a young life youth event at a, at one of the pastor's houses and some kid, I, I cannot remember his name and I wish I could, but he came up and said, Hey, Loman, you want to have a couple beers? And it didn't take me more than a split second to say, sure, you know, six pack of beer, three, two girls and, and a buddy of mine. And so we went back in the, in the, through the brush and just literally, I just slammed three beers like it was nothing. And it was kind of like alcohol had me at that point for really the next 15 years of my life of just really enjoying alcohol and eventually substances and sex and gambling. And my faith was completely put on the back burner. And um, I just kind of lived life not afraid of what the consequences might be. Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting the twists and turns that life can can take you on. Both Jen and I had a very transient childhood, and I, you know, as you said, you kind of moved out of the area nine years old. You're moving to a completely different uh, location, completely different environment, new friends, um, no friends, leaving friends. Y- you know, it can be an unsettling situation i think when you when you make a major life change like that especially as a kid especially leaving your friend group and so i i was just curious if maybe that was part of it too because sometimes you you know you get dropped into a a new environment you're the new kid and you don't know who are the good ones the bad ones you know the ones that have a reputation the ones that don't and like you just want to fit in and especially at that age you know it's all about fitting in so uh maybe that had something to do with a little of that um you know, willingness to, to be a rebel or uh, do something that you might not have otherwise done. Yeah, it totally, it definitely was because, you know, fourth and fifth grade was, you know, fine. It was the adjustment period of moving to Texas. But in sixth grade, there was this unique um, sixth grade education opportunity that my parents found where in a lot of ways, and, and it helped me connect in a lot of different ways with people, but it was kind of like a reverse segregation school experience for me as uh, from what, you know, a lot of, you know, African-American people have dealt with, you know, and, you know, and, and continue to right still today, but they it, it took a bunch of uh, 
of white kids in a magnet program and put them in an all black school. And, and that really affected me because I was bullied and I was, you know, humiliated a lot of times. And a lot of it was like, you know, who are you guys in our school? And that caused me to lose a lot of my confidence in who I was. And so when I went to, you know, a, just a you know regular public school in sixth grade and I transitioned out of that, I, I know that was a pivotal point for me as well. Cause I just really lost a lot of confidence in who Robbie was and, um, and I started, you know, drinking at 14 and that was a big part of fitting in and feeling accepted. And, you know, I was the class clown trying to cover up my own insecurities, which I didn't even know I had at that time. But again, I, I had very great parents, you know, you know, mom and dad loved me well. They didn't, I didn't suffer any verbal abuse or anything. It was just, I, I was just wired differently than a lot of kids. And, and that just bled into, you know, high school and, you know, wrecked cars and getting in trouble at school. And then the funny thing was like senior year of high school, I was a really good swimmer. I don't know if you guys like to swim at all, but um, I was a really I was, good I was part of the swimmer. diving team and, and Jen, oh, yeah? Jen, Jen had a bit of a stint there for a minute, but uh, yeah, I was part of the diving team in, uh, in our junior college. So I, I absolutely love that. I wasn't a swimmer, but uh, I, I love jumping off the three meter and, doing all kinds of twists and turns and uh, trying to land those dives perfectly. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's fun stuff. And I, and I loved it. I loved swimming so much, but the funny thing was senior year, uh, because I, I really liked alcohol a lot also. <laughs> and before practices, I, uh, I started realizing that maybe we were getting a little too buzzed before practice. And so <laughs> instead, it, <laughs> that's not good in a pool. And so instead of, you know, looking at these decisions, like I can keep swimming and do well, or I can quit drinking. Well, I quit swimming and kept drinking. And, uh, that was, that was a choice I made then. So that's kind of how my brain was wired is, uh, forget potential, just keep enjoying the party life. Yeah. It, it sounds like you were just ready to push whatever boundaries were there and do whatever you wanted to do instead of doing what you knew you should be doing. How did, how did your parents respond to this? Because certainly some of this had to get back to them, through your, you know, the, through the repercussions of, of some of these mistakes. I mean, you talked about wrecked cars. You talked about some other stuff. You talked about quitting swimming. Team. So how did your parents handle all of that? Unfortunately, uh, I, I think they just either turned a blind eye or didn't know how to handle it because I, in the midst of all my, you know, losing myself and living this chameleon-like lifestyle, I sadly enough, developed the art of manipulation and lying and, and cover up. And so I, I covered up a lot of things that were going on in my life you know, in the middle of all this. I mean, I'm, I am sad and I'm depressed and I have anxiety and so I never, ever talked about any of this stuff because I didn't know what I was dealing with. I just thought it was just natural life because uh, I didn't have deep sit down conversations with my parents or, my friends were all, you know, we're all superficial in a lot of ways. And so unfortunately I feel like I really just kind of, I mean, I lost a lot of great opportunities along the way, but then I look what I get to do now. And I'm like, okay, that was, I just say it was part of God's plan. Right. And things happen for a reason because uh, I should have died on numerous occasions, but you know, then after high school, I went to college to become a doctor because I wanted to be a doctor like my grandpa. But once again, alcohol beat potential almost every single time. And if I had to get an A on a test, I mean, it was easy to get an A for me. So I was just smart, but I was stupid in my, uh, um, <laughs> what do you want to call it? Just kind of daily life living. But I was, I was just academically, really you were and, smart, but, uh, in terms of yeah. real world, uh, choices, you were, yeah. you were not living a smart life. No, there was a disconnect there for sure. Well, I know you, you mentioned that uh, your drinking career started at 14 and uh, the climax of your drinking career happened June 7th, 2001. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about that day? Yeah, yeah. Well, in a few, a few months before that, just real quick, I got married in my addiction and to a good alcoholic and it was a very short-lived marriage and it wasn't really based on much um besides when I look at my current marriage and my vows and, and staying committed. But so we ended up getting, you know, it was a short marriage. We ended up getting divorced and about, and that was shortly before kind of all, everything went down in my own life, but I was heavily in gambling addiction, drinking and drink, drinking and driving eight nights a week 
I was just out all the time. But I had a good job, right? And I and I looked good, so people would consider it the oxymoron comment of I was a functional alcoholic. But inside, I hated who I was. I was just not living a great life. And I dealt a lot with suicide ideation before the evening you're talking about and referencing. And I would literally see my car as I was driving down the highway, veer off and, and run into a median while I was still driving straight. But I would see this vision of my car hitting a median, exploding, and I would really see myself dead on the side of the highway or dead jumping off a building. And this, this was like a daydream that. or a fantasy or, you know, I really, I, I think I could, or I could, and then you'd imagine what would happen. And then that would be the release. That would be the, Oh, then I wouldn't have to worry about anything at that, t- at that moment that, that would make the slate clean. And then all this pain, all this anxiety, all this worry, all this stuff I'm going through right now, this inner tumult that's going on, none of it would exist. I, it, it'd be over. Yeah, subconsciously, that was definitely driving me. Consciously, I wasn't like, oh, I want to go kill myself. It was just, my brain was just working that direction. Um, because they say that, you know, your brain doesn't stop really developing the frontal cortex until you're 26. Well, from 14 to 29, I was drinking and drugging and sleeping around and gambling all the time. So my logic was uh, was off. But, but again, you create that facade, right? And so one night I was out in Fort Wayne, Indiana, back in Indiana, right? Um, and hanging out in a bar in downtown Fort Wayne and music and girls. And all of a sudden, the bar got completely dead silent. And I audibly heard the words, you're done. And then the bar got really loud again. And I remember looking at my buddy, Sean O'Brien, and I was like, dude, I got to go home. I have no clue what just happened, but I think I'm actually done drinking. You know, and a good drinking buddy, he laughed and snickered and was like, yeah, whatever, I'll see you tomorrow. But something shifted that night, and I remember driving home, and it was one of those moments, those surreal moments where I, I kind of felt like I was sober, but I was still highly intoxicated. You know, there was something going on in my head and my heart, and I ended up getting home to my one-bedroom apartment and walked up 12 stairs to my loft apartment, and like every bachelor... I had a workout gym in my living room because I had a little vanity going on too. <laughs> I was pretty shallow. I was shallow, right? And uh, just just a lost soul, really. I was broken and lost and desperate and alone. And I ended up walking past my dog, Jake, and put about 350 pounds on the barbell and ended up laying down on my workout bench. And I picked up that rack and just dropped it on my chest as an attempt to end my life that evening. In the midst of that happening, and, and keep in mind, this is like milliseconds of time I'll tell you about now because I can you know, I can see it happening as I tell you the story. Um, but what I believe happened was that, you know, God had a different plan for me. And he grabbed that bar and held it for, you know, this milliseconds of time, which felt like eternity. And my dog started nudging my leg and looking at me with those puppy dog eyes, kind of like, dad, what are you doing? And my heart broke for Jake. And I immediately said to, said to Jake, I'm like, Oh my gosh, who's going to feed you tomorrow morning? And I started thinking about my mom and my dad and all the positive stuff in my life. And, and, and it was only God by God's strength and ability. Cause I couldn't even bench that much weight that he put the bar and my elbows are unhinged by the way. And God put that bar back on the rack. And I had a major moment of just like, it's going to be all right. Wow. That's powerful. That was, was, yeah, that was June 7th, uh, 2001. And, you know, that next morning I woke up and I felt different. I felt peaceful. I felt like I was a completely different person. And then I had a relationship with Jesus my whole life, but it was more like I had had an encounter that, that morning, early morning with him. And, um, I just, I just knew it was going to be fine. And so I ended up accidentally calling my parents because I meant to call my aunt who had like 20 something years of 24 years of sobriety. And, and I cried for an hour and that was the prayer that my mom had prayed for years, man. And that was, that was one thing I just want to say to mothers and fathers and family. Don't ever quit praying for your loved one because hopefully they'll get to that end of their rope before it's too late. And, um, 
man, I didn't go through detox or withdrawal. Like, and I could drink two bottles of scotch in a day from sales and marketing, but it was literally like I never, ever, ever drank my entire life. And I've never had a desire to drink even through the crazy life I've had in recovery for 19 years. And that's the total God story and miracle. And and I'm one of those small percentage of people that I feel like that's happened to. God delivered you from that. You know, Jen, Jen was pointing at me a couple different times, (laughs) you know, in, in your story. Um, Just because I think that we, we share some commonality and, and some common ground there. The reality of it is, is that I, I went through a God encounter myself you know, prior to 2009, um, I was going through a, you know, 750 milliliter bottle of vodka every two days. I was drinking in the morning. I mean, I just, alcohol was my way of dealing with Mm -hmm. stress. I was in the financial services industry, you know, the great recession had happened. I was losing clients and, you know, I, I just didn't know how it just felt like an insurmountable mountain that I could not overcome. I too fantasized about, you know, not being here and what would happen if I was gone and what would happen if I was dead. And, you know, like, I, I just think that it's, it's natural in the, in the course of going through extreme challenges to imagine that or think about that. Uh, I didn't rest with it for uh, any length of time, but man, it was just, I I felt like God had called me to a place where I was really on my knees, didn't have anywhere else to go. And I, and I just basically surrendered and I I asked him to help me, you know, and I, I was, I call it being a Christian atheist, you know, like I, I was a Christian, but there was nothing about my life that you could look at that would justify that or edify the fact that I was a Christian. So I wasn't living life like that. And so, man, when I dropped on my, on my knees, I, I remember the day, I remember everything. I, I, can, I can sympathize with what you're saying. I, I just felt this peace come over me. When I'd reached that end, when I'd reached that rope, I knew I couldn't go on any longer. I, and, and I told him, whatever you need to do, whatever you need to take, you know, like I just don't want to continue to feel like this anymore. And I immediately immediately felt peace. I felt like it was going to be okay. Like something had switched, something had changed. And it was like me arriving at the exact moment I needed to him meeting me there. And I just felt comforted. I felt restored to some degree. I have not also had a drop of alcohol since. So I didn't go through a 12 step process or anything, anything like that. And based on how much I was drinking, I, I should have had withdrawals and all that other stuff, just kind of like what you're saying, but he delivered me from it. He literally just took it away from me and I haven't touched it since. So I think that we can probably share that. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And it's, it's so hard in what I do now, just seeing how, I mean, this constant struggle, you know, but it wasn't like it was, you know, peaches and cream and, you know, you know, cherry pie and roses after that either. Right. And it was, (laughs) No, it it's like life. It's going messy. Through, going through the yeah, go yeah, we're well, going through the pain of of unpacking the past, and I did that in a twelve step program, and like I found a community of people that cared, and I I dove in head first, like I do some a lot of times, right? And I was like, these guys are happy, and I wanted to kill myself last night. What do you want me to do? Okay, I'll do it. Okay, I'll do that. Sure, I'll do that. And I just did what my sponsor told me to do, and I got plugged back into my faith community, and and that was a good road for you know a good peace for a while. Right. And then like, I mean, recovery has been, you know, had a, definitely a multitude of challenges with, we can get into that too, uh, too, but it was just, you know, finding community of like-minded people was, was incredible in early recovery. So what do you, how do you interpret the moment in the bar, the God whisper in the bar? How do you, because I feel like that was part of the story, and I, I feel like you look back on that, you you sense it differently now, but I, I'll call it a God nudge, God whisper, whatever, but you said that, that everything went quiet, and you heard, you're done, and then, like, everything kind of came back to life again. Like, what do you think happened? Well, I, I do believe that it was the moment of, like, you're done drinking, but in the midst of that, I still felt like I was completely unworthy and undeserving of anything good because of all the chaos I had caused in my life and other people's lives. And so there's been that 
there's been that piece of like kind of like even self-sabotage in recovery of that you're, you're not worthy enough for these good things. And so I believe that was the kind of two sides of the coin happening that night is like, you can be free, but you still think you suck. And you know, those things of just not believing I'm, I was good enough for better things in my own life. Do you think you didn't believe that you were good enough because of the, of the volume of, let's call it poor choices that you had made, you know, like where, where do you think that I'm not good enough? Because coming from a spiritual family, a faith-based family, you know, good childhood, you didn't have any like severe trauma or anything. Do you think that message came from, you know, you kind of, you called it the reverse segregation of that school and some of the beratement and bullying you got there? Like, where do you think that started for you? Uh, I just, I mean, I, and I think it started a lot when I, when I started drinking a bunch at 14, cause it was, it was from there. I just started lying and it wasn't true to who I was, but even you know, there's a, there's a part in the Bible where it talks about, you know, Lord, why do, why do I do the things I don't want to do and not do the things I wish I, that I want to do. Right. And so I was in this, this, this spinning like cycle a lot in my life to where I just started kind of self-loathing who I was, you know, and just, Cause I knew, and it wasn't like this condemnation thing. Like you're not supposed to have sex till you get married. Oh, you did. You're a bad person. It was just like, I just knew that most everything I did, you know, and then, and, and I was a very, I mean, I was also authentic and it was, I wasn't like a complete you know, shyster in my life. I was like, <laughs> you know, people, people came to me as a confidant for their problems. I had lots of friends and I was senior class president and held, you know, positions in college and stuff like that. So I was a, a trusted person with a lot of people. I just partied a lot and had fun. And, and just through that, I really lost who I was. And I, and I know that, and, and even like, I'll t- even in recovery, I'll talk about it because, you know, I ended up getting married, met my wife and um, got married in 2006. And uh, this is the midst of where I felt like God was calling me to organize a huge free three day Christian music festival in the mountains of Colorado. Right. And I don't play music. I got kicked out of choir when I was in fifth grade, fourth grade. <laughs> so, but music always spoke to me in early recovery. And, and now I, I, I did this amazing thing in Colorado that God called me to, and I didn't do it. We did it as a huge community of people. It was a three day free Christian music festival in the mountains of Colorado where 15,000 people came and, you know, tons of lives and a lot of hope was restored in people. Right. And, and in the meantime, I'm married and have a young son and I don't have steady income. which caused a lot of problems in my marriage too, right? So I was still learning how to be a grown-up person at, you know, in my 30s. And I'd been sober for five years, six years. But I still was really lacking a lot of the mature characteristics one should have at said age. Um, being a father and a husband and a provider now and... I, and a lot of my insecurities were in that too, because I, I felt like I was failing as a husband over time and failing as a father over time because I wasn't providing well. And I started again in my, in year 11 of my recovery, I ended up having a, a major mental breakdown in recovery without any drugs or alcohol for that period of time. So I was still in the midst of a, a pretty good sized gambling addiction where I was you know, putting us in, positions of bankruptcy. Again, I, I filed bankruptcy in early recovery. Um, it was your stay sober or really try to pay off my debt. And my sponsor walked me through that. So here I am again, in another financial crisis, uh, 11 years sober. <laughs> That's not a good place to be. Yeah. So how did you, how did you weather that? Because I know that that ended up being a very traumatic experience as well so your 11th year of sobriety you end up in a situation where uh basically life turns your world upside down and and uh i can only imagine that you were you were <laughs> imagining that uh, life would forever not be the same uh because you you, you talk about uh something happened and uh it, it looked like you could face prison time like real significant prison time so walk us through what happened yeah and so here we are back in you know, November of, uh, 2011, I was getting ready to lose my insurance agency that I had worked so hard over two and a half to three years to build up. And, and just due to sales and production numbers, I lost that business. And that came with a lot of mental baggage because 
you know, my marriage was struggling. I had, you know, my son at this time in 2011 was four years old and my daughter was two years old at this time. And so going from okay income to the, the progression of losing an agency is very unique in itself, which I would love to counsel people <laughs> through this because it was hard. Um, but through that and losing my business, I now had told myself and believed the lies that I had failed as a husband, failed as a father, failed as a businessman. You are just a total failure, dude. And I was living in complete fear. I was not living in my faith as I was in early recovery. I was not trusting God. In fact, he was on a shelf collecting dust at this time. And so I was still deep in a, a, a good gambling addiction that my wife didn't have a full grasp on. And I had a lot of debt from my business. So now I'm unemployed. Um, my wife had just quit her job in December 2011 because her adrenals were shot because our life was pretty fast paced and uh, we were very disconnected and her job was very demanding. And so now we're, now we're at no income at the end at Christmas time, <laughs> December, 2011 and February, 2012 comes around. And that's just when all my mental capacities just evaporated in a moment. And I was, up late. And again, I'm dealing again with suicide ideation. Like here's this pattern, right? Life's out of control. You may as well kill yourself or, you know, just you, you stink. You, you, you failed again, Rob. Good job. And so the self-sabotage, I mean, I was literally hitting myself in the head to the point where I couldn't put my glasses on because that's how much I had started hating myself. So that was my self-harm was physical abuse to myself where nobody could see it, but I could feel it every single time I did that. And, you know, I, I, it was the most desperate place I'd ever been. I'd say even more than, you know, back in 2001. Um, but I wasn't telling anyone about it. Cause I mean, heck Sean and Jen, if I told you that like, that's what I was doing to myself, you would probably want to have me committed to a mental hospital or something, or at least try to get me some help. <laughs> and I was just too afraid. So I was up late, uh, in the morning, I guess late night, February 14th, early morning, February 15th. And I was sitting on my couch and, um, just started thinking like, man, our house is a complete mess. I'm just going to organize our townhouse right now. And I didn't want to look for a job or spend any more time on the computer. So I got up and as I got up to clean our townhouse, which I didn't know then that I had a problem with clutter and OCD, but I now, I now know that. <laughs> and then, you know, it's like the things you wish you would have known. Right. And, uh, I just want to encourage anyone out there. Like if you're struggling with stuff and you're afraid to tell somebody cause they might think you're crazy or judge you just, go find someone and talk to someone because things like this can be avoided. Um, I definitely believe if we can get vulnerable and honest with each other, we can avoid catastrophes like this. But I pushed all those people out of my life. And in the middle of cleaning our townhouse, I just kind of disappeared, I guess, if you will, mentally. And next thing I knew, I had lit a box. Um, I had lit some boxes on fire on my covered patio in a townhouse community at about one thirty in the morning. And I couldn't stop what happened at that moment. And I had to shut the door to the sliding glass door and run upstairs and I ripped my wife out of bed. I'm like, you know, babe, get up. The house is on fire. And she had to grab my two year old daughter out of her crib. And I picked up my four year old son who was sleeping in his bedroom. And we run downstairs as fast as we can. And, and fortunately, the fire was still on the patio. It hadn't entered our townhouse yet. Um, so I ran out the front door to get my, wake my neighbors up as we'd already called the fire department and, or 911. And when I came back inside, you know, my wife put the boots on our kids because it's Colorado in February and bundled them up. And we went out the front door as a family. And as soon as we shut the door, the backdraft had caught. Uh, the gas meter had melted on the back patio and literally blew our whole patio and the fire raged in and, and melted the inside of our, our townhouse. And you know, we pretty much lost 
everything we had and our, our neighbors had suffered some damage to their units um, as well. And that was one of the most catastrophic moments in my life and my family's life and my neighbor's life. Wow. And, uh, and so I, I'm gathering through that, that out of that whole situation, the, you were charged with arson. Is that right? Yes. Eventually I, um, after lying about it for several weeks and lying to my wife, I had confessed to her and confessed to authorities what had happened. And, uh, a lot of weird things in here and just so many God stories, but I basically ran back to my 12 step meetings. I ran back to church, reached out to mentors. I saw where I, why I had gotten to where I had gotten. And, um, in June of that year, I confessed to authorities and for some interesting reason, they did not arrest me until six months later, even though we tried to turn ourselves in several times, or I tried to turn myself in several times. They just, I don't know what happened. They, they fell through the cracks or they wanted to prove it on their own, whatever. I just trusted God with the process. And uh, in December of 2012, I, I did get arrested on 19 felonies and 13 misdemeanors in uh, early December 2012. Wow. And so you're, you're, you're looking at some serious prison time as a result of this. They arrest you. They charge you. I can only imagine what that must have been like to face, okay, here, here you go. Look, look what all these decisions have done. Look, look where I'm heading. You know, did, did you feel like at that moment that's what you deserved? Were you, did you feel like you'd turned a corner and, and already hit bottom and were starting to come out of it? And so now the irony is just when you think you're starting to rebuild your life, now you're going to go away to, to prison? Like, what, what was your mindset? No, we, my wife and I had come to the resolve, I guess, that, you know, God is totally in control with this. So whatever happens is what was supposed to happen. Like, I can't control it. I'm not going to try to manipulate myself out of this. I've confessed because that was the right thing to do. So when I got arrested, I mean, yeah, it was extremely hard. We, we actually knew when I was going to get arrested because my wife had received a letter on a Saturday because she was considered a victim, obviously, in this case. And so we knew, my attorney said, get ready, they're coming for you in the next 24 to 48 hours. And they had actually gone by my mother-in-law's house looking for me because we were living there until we moved to where we are now. And so I knew they were on the way over to this house to get me. And so my wife, you know, my son was at originally at preschool. We took him to my grandma's house or his grandma's house. And so when I came home, I, he, they were waiting for me here. And, you know, it was one of those things of they knew where I was all the time because I told them I'm like, Hey, we're, I'm going to be like, they knew where I was most of the time. And they just treated me like I was on the run and, you know, threw me in the ground and handcuffed me. And it was, it was, I was confused, but, um, I remember sitting in the car with the arresting investigator and he knew I had published a book before and he goes, well, maybe one thing you'll get out of this is another book deal. And I was like, yeah. And you're going to be one of the main characters. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but <laughs> I was like, yeah. he, he told me all these things like, brother, if, if you, if you confess to me and tell me you did this, I promise you'll never see the inside of a jail cell. And I'm like, I'm not trusting anybody, but I did trust God. So when I got arrested, you know, a, a complete miracle was that, you know, my, my attorney, cause unfortunately at that time in Colorado, like Colorado was on fire like it is now. Right. I mean, there were so many fires in Colorado and it was not a good time to, uh, I say it's jokingly lighthearted, but just, you know, not a good time to become an arsonist. And, um, you know, and it was like, they were going to throw the book at me and I just knew it. And I had a hundred thousand dollar bond. So people that are looking for some hope here, I just say, don't ever believe what is on paper. You believe in God. Don't ever believe what is on paper because he can have a completely different story for you. And I had a hundred thousand dollar bond. And I mean, my parents, don't have a hundred thousand dollars to put down. Right. And I'm not going to ask anybody to do that to get me out of jail. So, but, uh, but we prayed hard, man. And we just, I just asked our attorney and like, Hey, can you at least ask for like 50% reduction? And that day when I had my hearing, my bond hearing was my pastor, my wife, a friend of ours and an and several angels in the room. Right. Because the judge, ended up reducing my bond to $25,000. 
And I was able to come home that night on a mandatory protection order with serious alter- alterations to that so I could live at home with my kids. And we just literally spent the next eight months waiting trial. Uh, not trial, sorry, my hearing. I, my attorney said, if you get away with this and you know, and, and you are found not guilty, how are you going to respond? I'm like, I, I have to tell the truth. I cannot live this lie for my entire life. And so I knew... I knew I had to just tell the truth because the truth will set you free. And so on July 8th, 2013, I was looking at anywhere to what you said earlier, Sean, anywhere from two years of work release to 56 years in prison. Well, what we went into the courtroom with that range, that range. But again, I was, I had given this whole process up to God. And I'm like, whatever this is, I will walk through that door because I don't know what's best for me or my family or anything. And maybe it's better off my wife divorces me and leaves me. I mean, I would, <laughs> you know, I mean, you think about the consequences. I mean, that's a big thing that we were dealing with, but my wife, God, she's amazing. Um, just spent time with God. And he's like, Hey, you guys are in this, you know, better or worse. And the guy that set that fire is not, is not my son. And she knew that wasn't me. That was just a guy that was broken and desperate and, made a really bad decision. So there we were in the courtroom on, you know, sentencing day. It was a chaos and we had tons of pastors in there with us in our community praying for us and just like, okay. And through all of it, the judge, I fled down to two charges and it was, uh, I was looking at 13 years in prison in 2013 and the judge suspended an eight year sentence and, gave me five years in the department of Corrections, And I just thought my wife thought all of us thought I was gone for five years because I didn't understand the system. Now I'm an advocate for the system and do a lot of work to help people and, you know, working on getting bills passed into law currently in my, you know, 2000, you know, 20. Uh, but then we didn't know any of this stuff. And so I, he hit his gavel and right before he hit the gavel, he said, Unfortunately, I feel like we mischaracterized this or whatever it classified this. This should have been attempted murder. And he hit his gavel and I went through the, through the, through the doors thinking I was gone for five years. Well, what, what was that like? I mean, were you at peace in that moment? Were you, I mean, what were you feeling? Oddly enough, I was, cause I literally honestly turned it over to God and said, whatever this is, I know we're going to make it through it. And I just believed that. And my wife believed that. And we just waited for the miracles and trusted God that, that he would do miracles in this. Um, I wasn't a bad person. I just like, I mean, these are the behaviors I developed growing up, you know, early through high school, through college. I just kept these patterns of how can I get out of this? What's the quick fix? You know, gambling addictions are horrendous. And thank God I'm free from that about 21 months now from gambling thanks to celebrate recovery and in my faith. Um, I don't even think about it anymore. So, but in that moment, yeah, I, just, I mean, I was gone and I thought I was gone and, but I, I did have a peace. I, anywhere I went, I asked God to protect me. I just started reading my Bible. I had time now, right? I had nothing to do, but sit in a cell. And I went through the process of the prison system and learned a lot. Uh, met a lot of amazing guys, you know, met, met a lot of guys. I, I would never, ever, ever meet in the dark alley. Uh, but they're just as lost as I was, just differently. And when I ended up in a, the, 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 there's a process, like you go one place for two weeks and then they figure out who you really are and then they send you somewhere else for two weeks and then they do some more, figure out who you really are and then they send you to your destination, right? So, um, but in all this, man, I was, I was only gone for 10 and a half months. Only is a lifetime, right? for a lot of people and for us it felt like it but of the of the 5 years I was only in prison for 10 and a half months and our community back home completely took care of my my wife and my kids and my wife has amazing stories of her own that she can share what God did with her while I was gone and and she decided to you know stay with me through all this and and in the middle of sitting in prison cells and having all this time I just basically sent myself to seminary, if you will, and became a student and figured out, you know, what's my faith? Why do I believe this Christian life that I was told about when I was a kid? And is it real? Is God real? 
Did you really care? I'm sitting in prison. Come on. You know, so Paul said, Paul spent a lot of time in prison. I mean, all, a lot of people spent time in prison, in, yeah. uh, you know, in the Bible. And, and in that, I was able to figure out for me, the most important thing in my life is living my life from who Christ says I am and who I am in Christ. And I just really believe that believe for the first time I'm a child of God. I'm worth good things. Um, if I do these things, I can stay on a better path. And, and I read and read and read and read. Meanwhile, my wife's home struggling like crazy, even though the community is around her, she's disciplinarian, nurturer, you know, provider, everything she had to do. Um, and so those are a lot of breaking points for a lot of families, but uh, we still continue to work through the wounds of that, but it's, it's a lot better today than it was yesterday. There's a Zach Williams song uh, with with Dolly Parton that I love. It's a it's a Christian song, and uh, there was Jesus. And one of the lyrics is, you know, the the blessing in the broken pieces. And so, mm-hmm. relative to your story, you know, do you now look back on these? I mean, it was the gambling addiction, it was the alcohol, it was you know attempted suicide, it was several bankruptcies, it was a a, a prison stand. And so for you, what, what has come out of this? What is the beauty out of the ashes? What is the blessing in the broken pieces of your life? What's the hope story for you? I believe that for myself and so many people in the world, I work in health addiction and recovery is that realizing that, that my identity and my worth truly comes from who God and, and who I am in Christ is the most important thing I've brought out of this, come out of this. And, and I, cause I believe God can stop anything if he wants to. And there's a purpose in anything if we can look and see it. And even though I've been through so much, when I look at that now and I get the platforms that I get to have through, through podcasting and social media and all the stuff that I do now to reach people that I get to bring that message of hope to people like you guys are doing. Right. And, and just say, man, no matter how far down the scales you have gone, no matter how far in the scales I went, God still says I'm worth something. And that right there, man, that's the message I want people to hear. Like I'm so passionate about it because so many people are lost and struggling. And COVID has put so much on people that just has brought so much chaos to people's lives and stress and panic and and all that, no matter when your world's falling down, if, if we can just sit in that moment and say, okay, all right, there's a massive storm going on around me. And I have no idea what the lesson is in this, but I can look back on my life and I can see all the lessons that God was showing me that I was too blind to see. But now I can look back and say, okay, if I could just believe that I made it through all that stuff and I know that the, the struggle I'm going through now there's a blessing coming out of it. I just, I just believe that, you know, and two promises God gave me when I was in prison was one, I healed your marriage and two, you will get into the halfway house the first round. Okay. And they don't let arsonists into halfway houses and community corrections, but I got in and it was a blessing and amazing that, that I was able to go that route. So I just, I just look at the evidence of my own life and just believe that no matter what is written on paper, no matter what anything says about me, that God has a different plan. And it's to me, for me, it's going to be better than I can even imagine. And I'll share one more story about hope with people about marriages, because I put my wife through hell. Right. And no matter what our marriage was like before, I mean, we had a, we had a rough marriage. We, held each other captive to false truths about each other that caused a lot of emotional damage on both sides of our marriage. Right. And I used to blame my wife for the fire. I used to blame her and say, well, we got here together. Right. But it doesn't matter. Like my responsibility is how did I internalize our marriage? And that's, that's my ownership. It doesn't matter what she ever said or did the way I took that and told myself through mistruth about myself I did that a lot and that and that wasn't fair to any of us it wasn't fair when I did it to her and she did it to me man and 
So last year, I got to share this because this is really cool. So if you're ever struggling in marriage and you feel like you just want to quit, don't. You know, it's like the picture of the guy that's mining for diamonds and he just has to hit that thing one more time. And he found gold. He found diamonds. And so last year, we were at a, a real pivotal point and it was just hard. We were arguing and yelling and stuff. And a lot of it's financial fear and just fear of the God and just stuff, right? And so we just got to the point where it's like, we got to give this one more shot and go to, go to this marriage thing. So four and a half months, both of us went two hours a week and um, separately, we never counseled together. In all this, we learned a lot about ourselves. But in the middle of this, my wife says, hey, honey. She called me honey. That was good. <laughs> that, wasn't, that word wasn't gone, right? Phil said honey and babe. And, you know, we, were, we, we just were struggling, right, to make heads or tails of all this. And uh, we, it, was, it was contemplating divorce and saying the horrible D word. And, and uh, we went through this. And she said, you know, the, the only thing I would, the only cruise, somehow cruises came up. The only cruise I would ever want to go on is a family life marriage cruise. And I was like, and it, what I used to do because of my gambling addiction is I would recoil and say, well, how are we going to pay for that? <laughs> you know, well, that's so expensive. There's no way we can pay for that. And in the middle of that, I just said, okay, well, let's pray about it and see what God does. And a couple weeks later, one of my wife's friends calls and says, hey, Jen, Chris and I, we're supposed to go on this family life marriage cruise, but we can't go. And we felt like God said, um, we want to give it to you and bless you guys. Whoa. So this year, February, right before, right before COVID hit, we went on a, a free, to an extent, a free eight-day family life marriage cruise with 2,100 other couples. And that was like the most amazing thing ever that just says, hey, pay attention to the miracles because they're still out there and God's listening to you. And so we got to go on this amazing thing. I got to meet Alex Kendrick who produces like all these wonderful movies I love. And, and it was like crazy, cool, awesome. So God listens and he cares. And I just believe that. So that's, that's the evidence of my life that why, why doubt or question that anymore. I'm just going to keep going forward and helping as many people as I can break free from addictions and, people to not quit on their marriages and just say, don't quit, man. Don't quit. There's a miracle coming. So good. So awesome. So awesome. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I just, I got goosebumps as soon as that whole, you know, family life marriage and he, and he drops it in your lap and that's confirmation right there. He's like, Hey, listen, I got you once again. I got you. You just got to look for those signs. And, you know, I know you got a website lifted from the rut. I know you got a couple podcasts. So if somebody wants to connect with you or learn more about your life or your resources, how do they do so, Rob? Well, I'll say to people, if you're like in this moment, like and you need help like now and you just need to call someone to figure out what's going on in your life, I just tell them to call me directly at 970-331-4469. But if you want to go check out liftedfromtherut.com, I mean, I do addiction webinars. I'm going to do a huge, really cool online summit coming in December. Um, they can go listen to podcast episodes there about me and about other people. And it's just, I just try to provide resources and, uh, you know, there's, there's so much more to what God's done in the story that it's beautiful. So I just, I love to talk and, and share my story with people. And I love to hear people's stories. That's why I do podcasting like you guys do because you love the story mm-hmm. and there's so much hope in everyone's story because we're still breathing. We're still alive. There's still hope, you know, please mm-hmm. just reach out for help. Who cares who it is locally? Call me. Uh, but just don't quit on yourself. Well said, Rob. Thank you so much. What what a story of inspiration. What a story of hope. We can't thank you f- enough for your vulnerability and, and for sharing. Thank you. Yeah, well, God bless you all. And thanks for all you're doing to spread hope around the world. Yeah. Thank you. That was awesome. All right, Jim, what do you think about our interview with Rob Lohman? I thought he had a very interesting life. He did, mm-hmm. right? Yes. I feel. I feel like you know what was, what was the question that I had in my head that I, I that I didn't ask, but I probably should have. But I, I think I kind of asked around it. Was you know here you and I are okay? Like we're we're Christians. We mm-hmm. we are trying to raise our boys. 
we're trying to do the best that we can to help them get on the right path, right? In right. in the future, right? So his parents were doing the same thing, but somehow, some way, I mean, it wasn't like he had a traumatic childhood. It wasn't like he had some specific event that he could really point his finger at, but there was something about his life and his decision-making, his choices that led him down a path that must have been really, really difficult for his parents to see yeah. and to watch and yeah. to witness and to try to pray into and and um, just just see him turn the other corner. I, I imagine it was quite a ride for them as well. Yeah, I felt the same thing when he was describing his parents and how he was brought up. I was like, oh, that's totally us with our boys. And then I'm like, oh, <laughs> That's totally us with our boys. I okay, so if, if one of our kids were to go down that path, which one would it be? Oh, gosh. Madden? No, <laughs> no he's my sugar bear. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Our, our youngest. I'm just, I'm just throwing it out there because I knew that would create that kind of a reaction in you. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think there was, there was so many hope nuggets. I, I really feel like the way that he encountered God, you mm-hmm. know, that, that whole bar thing, and it got quiet, and he heard, you're, you're done. Yeah. You know, inter- interpreting that, and then seeing his dog, his dog there. I mean, God can work through cre- creatures and animals and things like that, mm-hmm. to, you know, to have that weight. And I, and I thought, wow, 350 pounds, that's not an inconsequential amount of weight sitting on your chest, oh, you know? Oh, gosh, I know. And, uh, to, and then t- one thing that he said, don't ever believe what is on paper, if you believe in God, you know, that yeah. whole, that whole, that whole, what his bail was going to be or right. what his, um, you know, amount was to have it reduced from a hundred grand down to 25,000, yeah. you know? Yeah. But I think he's choosing to take all of those life experiences, um, both good and bad, and then apply his knowledge and his, um, experiential background toward helping others. Mm-hmm. I, I love that. Yeah. I love that piece. You know, it's not what happens to us, but we use that that what happened to us as fuel to help others. That's right, right. what we're doing yeah, right now. Exactly. You know, so that was hope instilling to me. I thought it was awesome. Yeah. I you know, it's it was really what I got out of it is that no matter what happened or what he went through or what he was dealing with, like he always turned back to God. Yeah. Like, you know, he he wouldn't forget about God, but he would be doing things that weren't, you know, God-like. Yeah. And then he'd always go right back to him. Yeah. Like, he, there there was a draw there, a pull, always. Well, he's probably a lot like me, and sometimes you need to be, you know, hit upside the head four or five <laughs> times before you learn the lesson, right? Yeah, sometimes true. you just need the two-by-four across the side of the head before you learn the lesson. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I feel like he, he went through that, but I think that the lesson was seek God out, always yeah. turn to God in those moments, you right. know, like he's got you, he, he, you know, and I, and I related to him because we've been through some of the same mm-hmm. experiences. And, uh, I think you were flabbergasted to realize that you can get in that much trouble by burning some boxes on your balcony yeah. to start a bigger fire, I've right? To, I've, I have to tell my boys that because everyone likes to play with fire for some reason. <laughs> I'm like, I mean, Madden's banned from candles. Colby was Colby so was bad. a total pyro. It's just Colby and Madden. Yeah. But they like want to light Your everything team. on fire. My team, yes. My team likes fire. See, Jen and I have teams in our household. You know, her <laughs> team is my is my oldest and youngest, and my team is the middle children. <laughs> Why are you yeah. laughing? It's funny. It just we're not gonna talk about teams. <laughs> <laughs> my team is the coolest though. What? Yeah. We all know that. Really? Yes. Uh, well, I I don't my know that team we is, all know that. My team is super fun, and everyone likes my team. Not you're, that everyone doesn't like your team, but my team's really rad. Okay, you're right. We're not going <laughs> to talk about teams, all right? How about that? Sometimes Sean wants to trade team members, but I am really confident and happy with my team. I'm not trading. Sometimes I am my only team. I will say that. <laughs> all right? Sometimes I'm the only team. My team's winning. There is an I in team when it's just me. And sometimes I choose just me on my team. (laughs) All right. So if some people want to hear more of our uh, Hope Radio podcast, they can do so on all of the platforms. You know, anywhere you consume podcasts. We're on iTunes. We're on Mm. Spotify. We're on Stitcher. We're on SoundCloud. You can say Amazon Alexa, play Hope Radio podcast. Yes. But more importantly, if you want to seek us out, have a more direct connection to us, how do you do so, Jen? You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hope Radio Podcast. I think 
I had so much fun on this interview. I yeah. think we should do another one. I think we should too. I think we should do another interview. I think we're closing in quickly on episode 100. Jennifer, it's right around the corner. Can you believe we're almost on triple digits? I can't believe I've talked that much. Oh, well, wait. I don't really talk. <laughs> I don't. You can't believe you've listened that I much. I am a professional listener with a voice, meaning I may talk if I choose to. Well, let's see if you talk in the next one. Okay. 